Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome, as always, to Sunday Night Bible Study. And if you have your Bible, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And as you find 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to remind you that our function here is to go through the New Testament, beginning with the writings of Paul, in the order that he wrote them, not the order that you find them in your Bible, but the order that he wrote them. They're in your Bible simply by size. But we're going through them in order of when they were written. Um, So that means next week, as we finish 2 Corinthians tonight, next week we launch into the book of Romans. And that'll be a very exciting study. And as we go through these letters, we we are taking them at about the pace of two chapters a week. Therefore, it is urged, it is encouraged that we all become readers throughout the week of God's word, that when we gather together to celebrate what God is doing in our lives, we are able to um, go through the teaching informed, right? Because there's no way, as all of you know, (laughs) that I will ever be able to cover every verse in here under five hours. (laughs) Exaggeration. But um, so only I can only highlight parts that I feel the spirit is encouraging the church to hear this week. And what we've been doing in second Corinthians is looking at the theme unmasked because this is what Paul does in the second letter to the Corinthians. And I'll explain that in just a second. But what I want to begin with is this question. What makes a great Christian? What is it that makes some Christians greater than other Christians? Or to put the question in another way, let's say I had, and I thought this might be too provocative, so I didn't do this, but um, let's say I had people up here holding something that represented something that you might look upon as making a Christian lesser than. For example, this person over here, I'm not saying any of these things make you less of a Christian. You got to hear me out. But initially, some people act like this. So, okay, this person here has a pack of cigarettes, a Christian with a pack of cigarettes. This person over here, this Christian over here has a wine bottle and he's sipping out of a glass. This Christian over here is struggling with his feelings for someone of I didn't say he's practicing, but he's struggling with his feelings of someone of the same gender. This person, this Christian over here, is Chuck Smith. (laughs) Now, (laughs) let me ask the question again. (laughs) Which of these is the great Christian? Now, (laughs) now... Sometimes, though, and of course, because you feel trapped, you're going to answer, right, very carefully. But we can look at these people and we can say, hmm, I don't like how so-and-so walks. They have liberties I don't have. Or this person is a great Bible expositor and he launched the Jesus movement and thousands, if tens of thousands of people were saved, maybe millions, who knows, under his care. Or we look at Jim Elliott and we say, Jim Elliott suffered for Christ. He gave his life. There's nothing greater you can do for Christ. He clearly is even greater than Chuck Smith. 
And we have, wherever we get it, we have this criteria, right, in which we filter the people that we see, the professing believers, and we say, hmm, lesser, struggling, definitely not as close to Jesus as I am. Yep, I want to be like them. Don't want to be like them, want to be like them, right? We have some sort of way in which we filter the Christians we see into some sort of a spectrum. But again, what exactly is it that makes a Christian great, So we can talk about missionaries because they suffer, they sacrifice, right? We can talk about people in ministry because obviously God called them because they were better than any of us. That's why he called them. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) I'm open. (laughs) We have ways of determining in our mind what a great Christian is. But I want us to ask ourselves honestly. Do we know what it is that makes a Christian great? Is there a distinguishing difference between some Christians? Is there such thing as a struggling Christian and a great Christian? Question for us to ponder. Now, where we are in 2 Corinthians. What Paul has been doing is he has been addressing a big masquerade. And by masquerade, I mean like the picture on the back wall, a big party where people get together and put on these nice, fancy costumes, these masks, and they look better on the outside than they really are on the inside. And he has a church in Corinth, which he had planted with his own blood, sweat and tears and much trembling and fear and risk. He was there in Corinth. He was planting that church alongside them. And when he leaves to go to Ephesus... He gets word that the church in Corinth has gone crazy. That they have begun to follow these other leaders who have snuck in while Paul's in Ephesus. They come in and they call themselves, I don't know what they call themselves, but Paul calls them super apostles. That's 11 verse 5. They are the super apostles. And it's, it's very sarcastic, right? He's almost like, oh, you guys think you're so great. Okay, super apostles. What they do is they come in and they begin to boast about their accomplishments and how good they are and why Paul, like, just forget about Paul. He's over there in Ephesus. He's short. He's short-tempered. He's ugly. He does not know how to dress. His, his hand, he, he teaches from the pulpit like this, locked and loaded. He does not know what he's doing at all. And then they come in with their suave outfits, their capes and their long locks. And they're, you know, they got Robin and people with them to the sidekicks to make them look good. Um, In this letter, what we find out is first they're coming with resumes in which they are boasting about who recommends them. Paul never came with the resume. He just said, uh, well, okay, if you want to play that game, I have Gamaliel, the best rabbi in Jerusalem, by the way. I was his student. But I didn't come to you guys playing that game. Okay, I have my credentials, but... I just came saying Jesus loves you, but these guys, well, yeah, just go ask Paul. I'm not, I'm not Paul. Go ask Peter and James. And, uh, we even, we talked to Jesus once. Yep. I met him when he was alive. Oh yeah. And they got these great resumes to boast about. Second, they're coming in with this excellent speech. 
They have the method down in a city that prided itself in having an abundance of public speakers. Okay, this would be like our Tennessee or our Hollywood, an abundance of actors or abundance of musicians. This in Corinth was an abundance of public speakers, sort of the event of the day. People would gather around marketplaces to hear the best speakers. And one speaker would battle with the other speaker over followers and who and how they're getting paid. And it was a big game. In fact, it was so such a game that when Corinth had an Olympic event every other year, one of the competitions was public speaking. This is how serious they were about public speaking. And so Paul, as we looked at in 1 Corinthians, has addressed these people. Technically, they're called sophists, but we don't use that word today. So they're called pop preachers. Like pop musicians, they kind of go out. It's all about the big bang and the flash and the who has the hit for one week and then it's somebody else. And this is pop preaching at its finest in Corinth and they're producing it. And man, these super apostles come in with the best methods of pop preaching. Everything they say is a hit. Everyone wants to be with them. Paul didn't play that game. Third, they come in. And they have a charisma. They have a personality that draws people to them. They're like magnets. And, and people want to be with them. They want to mimic them. They want to be seen at Starbucks with them. They want to take selfies with them and tell everybody who they're with. These are the people that they are. Nothing wrong with people that have that ability. But they're relying upon their charisma to draw people towards them and away from the Apostle Paul. And Paul, meanwhile, it's in 10 verse 10, I reckon, that he says, <laughs> he quotes one of their accusations, and that is this. Uh, his letters are weighty and strong. Paul seems like somebody when he writes, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. <laughs> but when you see him, you're very unimpressed. He has absolutely no taste in fashion. His beard is mangly. His hair needs a little trim. And they go on and on, right? That's Paul. And so because of these super apostles, they're able to get Paul's own converts swayed towards them. And Paul, meanwhile, says, hey, this isn't the way I taught you guys. And what about me? Am I chopped liver? So this is what he does. Paul sails from Ephesus to Corinth, and he's ready to let him have it. He goes in there, probably gently, though. He goes in there, and before he can even get into this big masquerade party where everyone's trying to be cool... They send bouncers to him and say, get out, Paul. We don't want you here. Paul leaves. And he's so heartbroken over this that when he returns to Ephesus, we learned at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that he wrote a letter in which there were more tears than ink on the page. He wept his soul out upon that letter and sent it over to them. As it's going with Titus to the Corinthians, he begins to hope. Oh, I hope I did not speak too harshly. Oh my goodness. I don't want them to be, have their feelings hurt. I don't want them to be hurt out of my hurt. And he's, he's writhing in anguish and distress, waiting and waiting. Finally, Titus returns and says, Paul, good news. They received your letter. We don't have it, by the way. It's been lost to history. They received your letter and they are open to having you be their pastor again. So. What Paul does is he sits down promptly and pens 2 Corinthians. That's the letter you have here in front of us. And what he's doing in this letter is he's writing a resume to his own church 
of why he should be their pastor and these super crony apostles should not be there, why this masquerade must stop and everybody needs to take the masks off and be real for once and live the gospel. So what does Paul do? He writes this resume and if I was him, I would probably mess it up. I would probably start telling him about what schools I went to and how many CDs people get from my teachings and how many people I've led to the Lord. And, you know, I would, you know, that's what you do, right? This is why I deserve to be your pastor. What do these guys have? Paul doesn't do that, though. He refuses to play the masquerade. Instead, he unmasks the mighty apostle Paul takes off his mask and he begins to show them this is who I am. I'm a weakling. I struggle. I am not liked. I've been imprisoned and stoned. And everywhere I go, people don't want me. <laughs> I, am, I am untalented, ungifted. He just goes, this letter shows Paul without boasting about himself. And that's how he seeks to win his church back. A reverse resume. Here's what I'm bad at. Do you want me? But see what Paul wants is them to see the way these leaders are doing it and say, we don't want this masquerade. We want reality. We want the gospel back. And so that's what this letter is about. So what we saw last week is that Paul finally, after this long letter, right? He finally says, okay, I'm going to play the fool. Look at this in chapter 11, verse 16. 11:16 I repeat let no one think me foolish and actually if you go back to 11 verse 1 he says this I wish you would all bear with me in a little foolishness do bear with me okay what's he saying I'm going to be super foolish right now as the proverbs say uh, address a fool according to his folly or else he will think himself wise in his own eye, in his own eyes so Paul says okay I'm going to address the fools according to their own folly so what does he do he says I'm entering the masquerade just for a second. So 11 verse 16, he says, I repeat, coming back to the subject, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little, here I go. I'm entering the masquerade. The mask is on. I am mighty Paul. Let me boast. And he comes into the middle of the party. He's the life of the party. And they're listening to him. You can see this in the writing, right? You can almost see him just entering into this party. And like, he can just see everybody looking at him saying, wow, Paul. So this is what he does. He tells them in, um, 11 verse 21, the second half of 21, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am better. I'm talking like a madman. I reminds them I'm playing the game with you. <laughs> With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and in danger from rivers, from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from 
from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You want to follow me? (laughs) So here he goes. He's playing the game. He's entering the masquerade and he's saying everything he's so good at. But something sounds a little off. You know, all the party, the partiers with their masks on, they're looking at you like, "What's, what's going on here? The bouncers are getting a little like, hmm, I smell something funny. Then Paul, Paul does it. He does it. Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. What? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In other words, you're not going to believe what I say next. It's so good, I have to swear I'm telling the truth. So, verse 32, at Damascus, by the way, this is in Acts 9, you can read about this. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, I was, uh, he was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Like, okay, so you're the most wanted man in Damascus. Pretty cool. <laughs> Pretty nice boast there. Now, here's what's ironic in the roman empire the soldier's highest honor a soldier of the roman empire's army the highest honor he can gain was called the wall crown and the wall crown was achieved by when rome would surround a city and finally decide it's time to climb the ladders and siege the walls and go over the walls and take the city Uh, the first soldier obviously very dangerous right The first soldier to climb the city wall and enter into the enemy city was the one who was awarded the wall crown. So Paul's making reference to something they all knew about, the wall crown. It was the greatest boast and honor a soldier could receive. And now he's saying, hey, hey, that wall crown, I was the first one down the wall. He totally turns the whole thing upside down and he's boasting about this. Now you can see them like going, who is this guy? And now Paul, as if it's not obvious yet, he's about to just take the mask off and say, see, I am a nobody. So this is where we hit our passage. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. He's still playing the masquerade. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Oh, yeah, I'm a prophet. I see things you don't. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. It seems to him that the third heaven and paradise are the same place. It would seem paradise, by the way, is that um, is it's where heaven currently is remember the thief on the cross said uh jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise in revelation chapter 2 the church in ephesus is promised that they if they're faithful they will enter into paradise uh so until heaven is um until the new heavens and the new earth come as revelation 21 says um that's what you have is paradise by the way it's supposed to be edenic like um the same word is used to talk about the Garden of Eden by the Greek version of the Old Testament. So that's what he's talking about, paradise. It's an Edenic place with God. So anyways, I know a guy who is there. And verse 4, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will not boast. But on my own behalf, I'm sorry, on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses, 
Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So look, guys, I can play this masquerade game too. You see this? And he goes through all this list. You're like, ooh, that's impressive. But it's kind of showing your weakness. And then I went up. No, I actually went down the wall and ran away. I was, I was cowardly. I turned the wall crown upside down. And then I have visions and revelations. And now the people are like, this is sounding really good. Wow, you are somebody amazing, right? But in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Whoa. So all of a sudden, Paul plays the fool. He plays the game with them. He enters into the masquerade and he shows off everything he can boast about. But it sounds strangely weird. He's boasting, but he's boasting about the wrong sorts of things. And then here at the very end, at the climax, I see, I went to heaven. He then says, boom, it's me, Paul. And like, ew, took the mask off. You're not. And he says, I have a thorn. And they cringe and they back away and they say, get him, get him out of here. (laughs) Kind of a thing, right? You don't belong in a masquerade. But what Paul wants to do by being the example of unmasking himself is getting others out of this party too and saying, wait a minute, are we all wearing masks too? Are these super apostles really not that super? And then they see something real in Paul. That's what Paul wants to do and that's what he's been doing. So tonight we're going to be looking at weakness unmasked. And Paul here does that. He unmasks his weakness and he says, this is who I am. And if you don't want to follow me, I'm not going to lose a bit of sleep because I know who I am in Christ. You Corinthians don't make me somebody. You want to follow me? (laughs) So this thorn, this is where he shows the true ugly side. There is this thorn in the flesh given to him. Now, you got to see this, okay? In one way, it seems like Paul's setting himself up for greatness, but then he actually just shows he's not very great. So this great vision is there, and then the conflict enters into what he's saying. But there's this thorn, and the listener's like, oh, what are you going to do about that thorn? You're a great guy, right? You're a great Christian, Paul. Get rid of the thorn. So what's he going to do? It says in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, right? Like Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, three times pleading to the father. Don't let me take this cup. Uh, Paul here three times saying, please take the thorn from me. Please take the thorn away from me. And the audience is, he's building up anticipation and like, yes. Okay. So he didn't answer you the first time. He didn't answer you the second time, but the third time you got God to obey you. Three times I pleaded with the Lord concerning this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, no. That's the climax of Paul's story here. I have a thorn, dirty little secret. I have a thorn. And I asked God to take it away. And I, yes. And he said, yes. And he said, no. How great are you, Paul? What God said instead is this. Verse 9, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So some of them by now are a little let down. Eh, The super apostles are more appealing. Others of them are like, I so relate. You too? You have a thorn too? Therefore, he says, this is his conclusion of the matter. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, not the power of Paul, but the power of Christ may rest upon me. Rest is the word used in Genesis 2. God rested on the seventh day. It's the word used when it says that God's presence rested in the temple. That the power of God may rest. It may dwell here within me. So for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow. That is true unmasking. That is true openness. This is a man who is putting everything on the line. When he's got super apostles to compete with, he takes the cape off. He takes the mask off. The tights too, of course. (laughs) Um, Things superheroes are. He takes it all off and he says, hey, this could hurt a bit, but this is who I am. And some are going to relate and some are going to be disgusted. This is unmasked weakness at its finest. And Paul shows it all. Now, the question, um, (laughs) taking time studying this, there are as many opinions about this thorn as there are commentaries out there. Okay, you can pick anyone up. You're going to get a different idea. But actually, there is one in which a lot of the commentaries seem to fall. And it's almost like this rut that I've heard repeated so many times. People kind of slip into it like, oh, yeah, that's it. (laughs) It's uh, that Paul had some sort of a blindness or some sort of a problem with his eyesight. Um, I'm not convinced by it. It is interesting, but I'm not convinced. Um, The reason it's it's compelling is because in Galatians chapter 4 and 6, Paul writes to the Galatians, um, says that along the lines that they were not repulsed by his appearance. So apparently if he had an eye problem, maybe it was some people say pussing and oozing and it was really gross and that people would be repulsed by Paul. But the Galatians were not. They embraced him ugly and warts and all. Um, And then he later says that they were willing to give their own eyes for him. That's how much the Galatians loved him. Why would they need to give his eyes for him, right? Uh, and then at the end of Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you. This is my signature, big letters. So um, and it seems that Paul can't see that well. So he, putting it in modern terms, he had to use font 200 to get it seeable. Um, that's, that's the idea. However, I, my doubts with this idea are, one... Paul asks the Lord to remove the thorn. He says nothing about healing anything. And second, um, we're, we're totally, it's just pure conjecture, right? And it's, it's, it's probably a very close conjecture. There's good reason for this conjecture. But honestly, we're shooting in the dark. We're saying, well, he might have eye problems there. So, bang, we got it. <laughs> He's blind. Um, not necessarily. Um, he could have... Um, had some other physical ailment, didn't say it was the eyes. The, the Galatians, in saying we want to give you our eyes, well, we have a saying like that too, and we don't really mean it. We say, I'd give my right arm for him. 
Well, now, if I would give my right arm for you, it doesn't mean you have a bum right arm. That's not what I mean by that. It's a figure of speech saying, I would do whatever it takes to help you. And then lastly, when he writes with big letters, um, the word there actually doesn't necessarily mandate that the letters he's writing is huge, but it could refer to the entire letters being huge. In other words, I know I've rambled on a long time. This is a very long letter, I know. And that's how he signed off. Um, So there is reason to say, okay, maybe, maybe not. Um, Then there is, uh, so Galatians supports that he's blind, or at least near blind. Um, But the Old Testament supports another idea, that the thorn in the flesh is an Old Testament phrase that used to refer to opponents that would bother you. For example, in Numbers chapter uh, 33, verse 55, you have God telling them, Hey, Israel, when you go into the promised land, if you do not wipe out the inhabitants of the land, they will become thorns to you. He goes on like brambles in the eyes and thorns in the side. That's what they will become to you, an irritant, a bothersome. Uh, he also says this in Joshua 2, I'm sorry, Judges 2, verse 3, and in Ezekiel 28, verse 24. So this is used in several places in the Old Testament to refer to adversaries or opponents. So Paul could be saying that I have a thorn. I have enemies. I have adversaries. I have opponents. I have people that are always pushing against me, which would also fit better with him saying a messenger from Satan. Um, Further, uh, a messenger, a messenger refers always in the Bible to a person or an angelic being. So is blindness an angelic being or a person? Probably not. A messenger from Satan would probably be an actual flesh and blood resistance against Paul, perhaps. Um, Also, the word leave, when Paul says, I asked God that it would leave me, this thorn. Uh, I looked at every time this word is used in the New Testament. And every single time it's used, it never refers to objects. It refers to people that they would leave or that they did leave. For example, Hebrew says um, these believers dropped out of the church or they fell away from Christ. That's the same word he's asking God to do with my thorn. Let it just abandon me. Um, It is used only one time to refer to an object. And that's when Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower and the seed. And he says, some seed fell among the rocks, but because it had no root, it fell away or it left. Um, However, you can see that that is an image perhaps for people. And that's not necessarily literally referring to, you know, like seeds. The point of that parable was what happens to people. So, you know, there you kind of have a catch 22, right? It's like, eh, okay. So um, I go through all that just to say um, (laughs) that we don't know. We don't know. The problem with the one that I kind of sounded just now like I was leaning towards the opponents is that uh, in the Old Testament, those nations are sent against Israel and called thorns, usually in reference to Israel being disobedient. So the nations are going to come and teach him a lesson. Are we saying that Paul is being disobedient and now this opponent is teaching him a lesson? Uh, I don't know that that's quite what he's saying here. So anyways, there you have it. You're either going to follow Galatians or the Old Testament and decide what is Paul saying? We don't know. Other ridiculous ideas out there, like it was a lust problem with women. Um, That was one that was a what? That came out of nowhere. But here's the point. The thorn to Paul is ugly and it exposes his weakness. Whatever the thorn is to Paul, it is weakness in his life. 
And it is bothersome and it is hindering and it is always there. And he knows it. Like every time he steps down, oh, there it is. You know, when you have, I had a, actually during dinner, there's this little thing in my boot. Every time I walked, it's there. I got to, you know, then I sit down and untie it. And sure enough, not in the boot, in the sock, <laughs> there was a tiny, 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 tiny little thing. I was like, I get it, Paul. I get you. The little things can really bother us, right? So to Paul, whatever this is, it's weakness. He doesn't like it. He wants it to leave. And isn't that the way we deal with our thorns? We pray constantly to God. God, remove this, please remove this. Whatever the weakness is in your life, we're very aware of it because it jabs at us every now and then. When we're doing something, we know we're not good at it. And then all of a sudden the insecurity comes and the fright and the, oh, people are going to find out I'm a really horrible person. And you feel the thorn working its way in. And so what we do is, God, please remove this. Please get this out of me. Get this out of me. And that's what Paul prayed three times. Get this out of me. But God said, no. Because listen, God is not in the business of removing weakness from our lives. He's not in the business of removing weakness. He's in the business of using weakness. And that's why we have a world that is very messed up. Because the gospel doesn't come in and say, all right, perfect world now. We're doing a very bad job if that's what it's supposed to do. The gospel comes in and says, okay, there's darkness. Let's bring light. Let's use it and bring light. There's weakness. Let's bring strength. There's hunger. Let's bring food. This is what the gospel does. There's brokenness. Let's bring healing. It doesn't remove. It uses these things. Only when Jesus returns will all the thorns and weaknesses be removed. That's what you have to look for forward to in fact paul makes reference to that in chapter 13 um, a little bit later as his argument develops he's basically gonna tell him i'm coming back so uh, get your act together uh, stop the masquerade get rid of the super apostles i'm coming back and he's actually referring to jesus coming back as he does that he's likening himself to jesus coming back so get your act together chapter 13 verse 1 this is the third time that i am coming to you Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here I come again. This is finally going to establish it. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I should come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, true, but lives by the power of God. In other words, yes, Jesus had the moment of the cross and it looked very, very, very weak, but he rose after that and he's powerful. And when he comes again, he's not just going to like tolerate all his rebels. He's going to be powerful. So I, Paul, I might've been weak that first time I came and I let your little uh, bouncers bounce me out. And I went home weeping with my tail between my legs and wrote you a letter that might've happened once, but I'm coming back and I've warned you and I want to see your act together. Whoo. Like you're like, whoa. Are you sure that you're not just waiting your letters and of weak a personal presence, Paul? Because we're hoping. Um, so that's what he says. So I'm, he's likening his return to that, to Jesus. Um, that's when thorns will be removed, right? The desert, the wilderness will flow with waters and it will become a garden again. That's what Isaiah says. The wildernesses will flourish. Uh, sin will be ecstatic. It will be removed. Um, human rulers put down and God in charge. That's what happens when Jesus returns. The thorn, the sign of the fall of man is removed. Weakness is gone. And now it's the kingdom of God. 
That's what we're looking forward to. But in the meantime, as we pray and pray and pray, God, take this thorn from me. He's like, "Mm, I like it, though. We're going to have lots of time without it later. But right now, I'm going to use this thorn. So here's what we do. We look at weakness and we say, ah, weakness to us is inferiority. We, we establish weakness by comparison. Well, he is a really great Christian and I'm a really weak Christian. I'm inferior to them. He does excellent woodwork. I don't. I can glue toothpicks together. Inferior weakness. He's strong. Look at him lift, pump that iron. I've seen him at the gym. I do dumbbells. I run, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like weakness. We, it's, it's a sign of inferiority. So what do we do? We avoid weakness or we try to remove it or we try to mask it. Make sure nobody can see it. But what Paul has been learning as he prayed, God, take this inferiority from me. God says, no, I want to use it. What Paul has learned is rather weakness, thorns are opportunities they're opportunities not to avoid them, but to embrace them, not to try to remove them, but to use them, not to mask them, but to unmask them. What kind of an opportunity can come out of that? Well, Paul told us in verse eight, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul got it. Since God's not going to just take my weakness, he's going to use it to allow his power, like water finding the lowest places, to work through me from there. That's a great opportunity that we have. Not to walk around, oh, nothing wrong, I'm good, I'm strong, but to unmask ourselves that the power of God may truly be seen. So that people stop saying, ooh, super apostle. Where do you get that tape, that cape tailored? It so fits you so nice. Um, no, it's so that people look at you and say, <laughs> there is a God. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you relate. Cause that's what I think every night as I look at you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. So, um. What makes a great Christian? What makes a great Christian is not achieving great things for God. It's not achieving great things for God. Now, you talk about these Christians up here. Who's that? He's like a lawyer. Can you even be a lawyer and a Christian? People, it's a joke from old, right? I don't know. Uh, but then you look at oh, Chuck Smith. Oh, yeah, great Christian. Why? Look what he's done. He's books and saved and churches and, you know. You got a lot of money. <laughs> um, what makes a great Christian? It's not achieving great things for God. Because you know what? We're all in a lot of trouble. If that was it, Mike, perhaps, Pastor Mike, has maybe achieved some great things for God. But I don't know <laughs> that I've done much, not like Jim Elliott. And if heaven was a place of achieving great things for God, I know who's in the front row. And I know who's not. I'm definitely somewhere in the back. No, no, no. What makes a great Christian is not achieving great things for God, but receiving 
great things from God. That's what Paul's telling us is that I'm weak. So what? But because of this weakness, I've learned a very foundational truth to Christ and the gospel. It's that in weakness, the power of God has a habit of inhabiting. It's that I now have opportunity to receive from God his grace and all of his power and all of his goodness. I have more of God in my life because of my weakness. And what we find is that he played this whole masquerade, this pretending to boast between his, before the super apostles in his church, so that he can unmask himself and hit them where it hurts and say, look, I talked about my achievements. And that hasn't made me anybody. And I can read them for you again, but it would take a long time. I've had visions. I'm a great Christian. Nope. What makes me great is verse 8. It's the thorn. And it's Jesus saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected or my power is made perfect in your weakness. That is what makes me a great Christian. And that's where Paul's leading them and saying, think about it. You masqueraders, you masked liars, you phony. We're so hot and all that stuff, people. Think about it. What is the gospel doing for you? Did Jesus say, welcome to my kingdom? Here's a mask. Or did he say, welcome to my kingdom? You're going to have a thorn and you're going to limp with it for the rest of your life. But I'm going to look great through it. Think about it. What did Jesus call you to? Who is the one to be glorified? Our leaders or him? So that's what he says in 12, 8, 9, and 10 is, hey, I'm only great. If you think I'm great, I'm only great because of what I receive from God. So I was struck by the concept this week. That God has a weakness. Now, you know, I've heard things like this before. My friend Jesse, our missionary to China, he's said before, God has no potential. And at first I said, blasphemy. And I thought about it. That's true. He's, he's all he can be. Um, but God has a weakness. And this is what I discovered. The weakness of God is for human need. He cannot resist human need. He cannot resist human need. When he sees human need, he can't look the other way. He says, ah, ah, I got it. It's like ice cream in the fridge, freezer. <laughs> he cannot resist humans in need. That's what the gospel's about. And that's what Paul's pleading with the church that's masquerading about being the best church in the Roman Empire, the best of all of Paul's. And, and Paul has to tell him, listen, I don't think you guys get who God is drawn to. James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's as if need and weakness was some sort of gravitational force in the universe in which God orbited around he says, I can't control myself. I've got to go help this person. I've got to go meet this need. I've got to go rescue these sinners. That's the only way that thinking about God becoming human flesh and coming to this earth makes any sense at all. Is that God couldn't resist. Not just to kind of peep his head through the clouds and like, hey, zap, it's all fixed. I guess God could have done that. He can do anything, I guess, right? 
But instead, he couldn't resist joining our weakness. He couldn't resist coming alongside so he could cry with those who cry. He could hunger with those who hunger. And he could meet some needs. And he can show people a better way. I know the Pharisees, you've heard it said to you. And they're saying this. And they're all about achieving great things. But I tell you, receive great things. Did he not say that over and over and over in his commencement speech? Luke chapter 4. What did he say he came to do? Give good news to the outcasts, to the least, to the last, to the lost. Not to strut around with Herod and Pontius Pilate. In Matthew 5, he begins his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the lame. It's basically what it goes on to say. Honestly, I've read one Latin commentator who talked about the Beatitudes and said, because he's Latin, he has a better connection. He says, basically, for what the Roman Empire valued in the day, the Beatitudes was saying, blessed are the non-macho. <laughs> See, there's a macho culture. There's a macho image, and the Beatitudes shatter it. And then he tells the Pharisees as they gather around, say, look who he's eating with. Sinners, tax collectors. And Jesus says, um, I came for the sick, not the well. And there you have it in a nutshell. I must meet human need. I have an addiction, if you will allow me to say so, <laughs> to human need. I can't stop caring for human need. And that is what Paul learned through his thorn. That my God loves the ugliness I unveil when I unmask myself. He finds that beautiful. And I don't have to hide it from him anymore. In fact, if I want to live the true gospel, I cannot hide it from each other anymore. Here's the thing. We, are, we already know this, right? There is no perfect church. If there is, if you join it, you'll ruin it. You've all heard that before. <laughs> but I always hear that talked about almost apologetically. Like, oh, heaven forbid, humans run it. It's just going to happen. There's weakness. But listen, I don't think it's an apology that the church is imperfect. I think it's intentional. Think seriously. If there was a perfect church on this planet, who would it reach? Too many people would say, not me. I, I cannot relate to that. What the gospel does is not make perfect people. It makes authentic people. The gospel gives people the power to take their mask off and say, this is me thorn right here and all, but, but take a closer look. Isn't God beautiful? Isn't he amazing? That's why we have imperfect churches. And praise God that I'm not a perfect super apostle. <laughs> praise God that you guys aren't perfect masqueraders. I hope you aren't at least. The gospel's calling us to authenticity. The gospel's calling us to being real. And that's what I love about Paul's metaphor here of the thorn. The thorn. You can't get more earthly. You can't get more organic. 
You can't get more non-GMO than a thorn. This is right down at the dirt of the dirt. This is the thing when we take roses, we are careful not to touch. We trim them off. We protect ourselves from the thorns. Isn't it beautiful? We're talking about the petals. The thorn you have tonight is meant to make you an authentic person. So stop covering it up and live in the freedom of being unmasked. Thorns are not only authentic, but they hurt. They rub, they irritate. They're given to us too, so that we can know what it's like to hurt. So that we can go with the others that hurt. So that when others expose their thorns, we don't say, oh, I knew I was better than them. So that when we see it, we say, oh, I know where you're at. But the good news is, a great Christian is not someone who achieves great things for God. A great Christian is someone who receives great things from God. His name is Jesus. And his grace is at work tonight. And I pray, I pray that we will unmask ourselves before him and each other so that his work can work, work powerfully through us, that our weakness would be converted to something beautiful.